Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Is the New Testament reliable? Um, are the Gospels really trustworthy sources on the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus? Many skeptics will argue that they aren't, that they got a lot of uh, factual, historical errors wrong. Um, some will say that the we don't even know what the original New Testament said because it's just been, we, all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies as though what the original uh, documents may have said may have been drastically different than what we have in our Bibles today. They, you know, some argue that they were written so late that they're, they're just legendary documents. Uh, you know, they turned a mere mortal man like Jesus and into the, uh, to the, son of God. And then they'll, you know, they'll argue that, oh, Mark has a relatively human Jesus, but by the time you get to John, he's full-blown God, creator of the universe. Are these claims true? Are Is the New Testament unreliable? Is it just um, full of fabrications? Well, my guest today is Professor Craig Blomberg, and he has written several books on this topic. Um, and has taught several courses on this. And um, if, if you are, uh, if you got your start in apologetics like I did, reading Lee Strobel's *The Case for Christ*, you'll recognize him from I think the first interview of that book, if not the second. Uh, Lee Strobel interviewed Professor Blomberg uh, in his book, and he argues he makes the case that yes, the New Testament's uh, documents, um, and especially we're going to we're going to zero in specifically on the Gospels today. Uh, they are reliable. So, Professor Blomberg, it's it's good to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me. So, before we get started, um, what what have you been up to lately? Rehabbing from a knee replacement. <laughs> oh, that's that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> It's so, coming along slowly. Yeah. So first let's let's dive into the, the criteria of what what does a what criteria does a document which claims to be telling us historical events, what criteria does it have to meet to be considered a reliable document? Like how like how do we know when we've gotten there? Well, that depends on who you ask. Some historians uh, are more stringent in their requirements than others. But uh, the kinds of questions that you want to deal with involve um, finding out, if possible, who the author is, when they wrote, uh, how close in time uh, they were to the events narrated, uh, did they use uh, additional sources or uh, eyewitness interviews? Um, what do we know about their character? Or uh, in the case of uh, if they belong to a movement, 
what that uh, movement stood for. Um, and then you look to see if uh, there is any way of checking uh, the information against other historical information that we have. Are there um, independent sources uh, in the case of uh, what we're talking about today, uh, an ancient figure? Uh, are there other uh, independent sources from the ancient world that can corroborate uh, or contradict um, some of what's written in whatever we're analyzing? What about internal consistency? Uh, does the, the text in question uh, make sense uh, itself or is it riddled with uh, contradictions and uh, it's not like um, probability and statistics in math class where you can say uh, I want a 95% uh, level of significance and crunching the numbers and when it hits a threshold uh, uh, the laptop beeps and uh, you've got a historical document um, it's, it's up to the individual uh, at what point they are comfortable saying uh, on balance, it's more likely that these things happen than not. So it's more of a, so determining the reliability of a document is more of an art than a science. It's both. Um, and a lot of introductions to uh, the study of history, historiography, as we call it, will will say exactly that, that it is both an art and a science. So um, what evidence is there? You, you talked about uh, authorship. Um, we, it's important we know who, who wrote the, the documents in question. What evidence is there that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really were written by the peoples whose names are attached to these books? You know, oftentimes you'll, you'll say the Gospels are anonymous. And I mean, you know, you, you, if, you don't, if you ignore the headings in the Gospels, which were put there by English translators, like the people who made the NIV and the ESV and the KJV, you don't really have um, the author signing his name um, you know, like, like you do in the Pauline epistles where he says, I, an apostle of Paul, right. meet you. So how do we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Uh, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's, it's absolutely true that once uh, a gospel gets underway with what we've come to call the first chapter and first verse, originally it would have just been the first sentence, uh, there is no explicit reference to uh, the author. Balancing that, um, all of the manuscripts, which number in the thousands that we have discovered from the ancient world that start at the beginning of a gospel, some are torn off because the, the beginning or open end of a scroll was often the most vulnerable to damage. But all those we have that, that start at the beginning start with the gospel according to fill in the blank. Um, so from that point of view, uh, Simon Gathercall in Cambridge, for example, has argued uh, we shouldn't speak of them as anonymous, but I still do. Um, the uniform 
tradition, uh, the claims of patristic writers, that is to say Christians beginning already in the second century and moving on from there, um, is that these are the four individuals in question. The only uncertainty surrounds uh, the man named John who is said to have written the Gospel of John. Um, there's one tradition that speaks of a man named John the Elder in a context uh, that also speaks of John the Apostle. And it's not clear whether um, the writer is equating those two or speaking of two different individuals. Um, but apart from John, the other point to make is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not likely to be the kinds of people um, that the church uh, as more apocryphal or heterodox, uh, unorthodox portions of it would eventually come to do uh, to assign uh, authoritative names to spurious documents. We do start to see that in the late second century but uh, they're well-known, famous people like Peter uh, and Philip and Mary uh, Magdalene and Nicodemus, who spoke with Jesus in John chapter 3. Matthew had a rather um, <laughs> sketchy background with his uh, work as a tax collector. Um, and perhaps next only to Judas Iscariot would not have been uh, one's first choice out of the 12 disciples to fictitiously ascribe a, a book to. Mark and Luke were not even among the 12 closest followers of Jesus. Mark appears in a handful of places in the New Testament as John Mark and is best known for having deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Um, they're later reconciled, uh, but it seems that that was a number of years later. Um, Luke is known only from uh, two brief references at um, the ends of Paul's letters where he is called um, his favorite doctor, his beloved physician. And um, the five times in the book of Acts where the narrator stops talking in the third person and starts saying we uh, did this and we did that seems to correspond to where Luke appears uh, in person with Paul in his journeyings. But again, this isn't a, a major figure. We know nothing else about him uh, besides this. Uh, does all that add up to conclusive proof? No. And uh, there are plenty of scholars who would say uh, it's more likely that these were truly anonymous Christians, but probably next generation followers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that only removes them by one more individual in the chain of witness or testimony. And uh, unlike many people, I, I don't find that to be that damaging a, a claim. We're still looking at first century documents uh, narrating the life of a first century individual 
uh, in an era when to have biographers write that closely to uh, the lives of the people uh, they're describing was not unheard of, but very rare. Yeah, I always found that second argument to be uh, really powerful. I, I found it that it resonated with me. You know, like Matthew, like you said, he's a he's a tax collector. He's a very you know had a very very shady background, and that that argument gets even more powerful when you combine it with the fact that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. That's why he quoted from many Old Testament prophets to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it'd be one thing if you were writing to like a Gentile audience, but you're writing to a Jewish audience, and you're going to make as your pseudonym someone who people would be less likely to listen to uh, no and like mark and luke you know like you said they you know they they even in even in the places in the book of acts where they appear they don't appear very often uh john's the only one i can conceive of someone making up um because right. you know like the the uh, the apocryphal gospels they did pick a whole lot of good names peter and john and philip okay. and i i mean I, I could go a step further and say why you know if why not why not attribute it to jesus himself then you've got you know you know the gospel according to jesus hey i'm i'm jesus i'm writing this book let me tell you what i did uh, it is remarkable uh, that uh, as far as we know jesus never wrote anything and nobody ever well, that's not quite true. Uh, there is a very late third century uh, apocryphal document that claims to be the correspondence between Jesus and a, a king in a, a Gentile land uh, up in the area of what today we would call Syria. But uh, nobody gives any credence to that, not even the, the very skeptical scholars. So you're right. Um, why not? Why not have a gospel of Jesus? That would that would carry great authority if you believed it. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the what are some of the writings that attribute the um, you know your first argument for their authorship said um, that you know there were there were many traditions that ascribed these names to the gospels. What what are some of the writers who said this guy wrote this gospel? The oldest known individual is a man named Papius who probably uh, wrote in the first quarter of the second century and uh, identifies himself as someone who um, heard the Apostle John. It's his testimony that has the ambiguity between uh, the Apostle and the Elder John. Um, and so uh, he obviously was an individual who was born within the first century uh, John, early church tradition, uh, with one exception, claims uh, lived to a uh, ripe old age to nearly the end of the first century. Um, and then you have later writers uh, such as Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, uh, Eusebius, as you move on um, into the uh, uh, period of a full-fledged uh, church historian. Um, not every individual that you can cite for uh, the authorship of one gospel says something about all four, or if he did, we've lost that testimony. Um, there is a prologue to a document that was written against uh, a heretic 
by the name of Marcion uh, in uh, the mid-2nd century that's just called the Anti-Marcionite Prologue because we don't know anything more about the author of that. Um, so there are uh, easily a half a dozen recurring uh, sources for this kind of information. There may be more, but once you get uh, moving into later uh, generations, uh, it's difficult to prove that these are independent sources. More likely, they're just quoting um, the people we've already mentioned who came before them. In, uh, in his book, Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace made the point that um, a similar kind of thing is uh, the case with the writings of Tacitus. Tacitus doesn't put his name on any of the um, any of his writings, but we know Tacitus wrote, you know, like the annals, because uh, other writers attributed to them to him. And so he makes the argument, well, if you're going to throw out the traditional authorship of the Gospels, you might as well throw out the uh, the traditional authorship of the annals. And Tacitus, of course, for those who don't know, it was a second century Roman historian. Yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, seeming double standards uh, among uh, the most skeptical uh, views in that uh, um, procedures, uh, criteria that would never be uh, foisted on other ancient documents um, and I know, I suspect you're going to, to ask the question later about ideology, but as far as we know, every ancient history or biography was ideologically driven. You didn't bother to undertake such a, a time-consuming, expensive work uh, unless you had a, a purpose, a perspective that you wanted to commend. There was something important that could be learned from these individuals. Um, and so uh, that's not a, a defeater. Uh, the issue is, uh, do we have a level playing field in treating the Gospels the same way that historians routinely treat other ancient uh, historical and biographical documents? Do you, I, I hate to, I hate to say psychoanalyze people. In fact, I was telling someone earlier uh, today, I just like to deal with arguments for and against positions because me too, you know, we can psychoanalyze each other all day, but you know, I do, do you, I do suspect that the reason the gospels and the epistles are treat, they are put to a much, much, much higher standard than other ancient writings is because if you were to accept uh, like you know that the gospels are reliable well then you kind of have to take what they say seriously and what they say seriously has worldview and religious implications and if you are if you don't want christianity to be true for whatever reason uh that you know you might not want to go that route so you might you know tacitus hey he doesn't make any worldview claims of you but um the gospels they do do you suspect that that might be why a lot of people, you know, that they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. Tacitus would love you to be pro-Roman, but that doesn't uh, uh, 
require much in the 21st century by way of a changed life like uh, um, following Jesus would, absolutely. So next question, um, how do we know that the New Testament we have today says what the original New Testament autograph said? Many atheists, and especially especially Muslims and Mormons, claim that the New Testament documents got corrupted over time as they were continuously copied over and over. Um, and for the Muslims and the Mormons that say, well, that's, that's why God needed to give more revelation, like the Book of Mormon or the Quran, to correct some of the mistakes that were made in the course of the transition. But is this claim true? How would you respond to this objection? Yeah, and, and it's important to uh, to say with respect to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that um, especially among their scholars, um, professors at Brigham Young University, uh, there is, is uh, very much an awareness that, uh, that we have good, uh, not perfect, but good manuscripts. Um, it's not the Book of Mormon that... Uh, um, does anything with uh, uh, the corruption of scripture. It is something called the Joseph Smith translation. Uh, but interestingly, uh, though many Mormons value that, uh, the actual canonical scriptures um, for the Old and New Testaments uh, for uh, the Mormon church are the, uh, is the King James version of the Bible. Um, but at a, popular level you're right there's there's no question that there are these uh, claims and in islam it is it is very rampant and very widespread um that's actually uh, one of the easier uh, claims to respond to because uh, the amount of textual evidence that we have um is is somewhat mind-boggling uh Exact numbers are hard to come by because fragments of manuscripts are not always, um, it's not always agreed whether they come from the same manuscript or two different ones. But cautiously, we have over 5,300, some would say over 5,700 uh, copies of anything from a small portion of a single book to an entire New Testament in the pre-Gutenberg printing press era of uh, hand-copying Greek texts. And then once we go to uh, ancient translations, also hand-copied into Latin and Syriac and Ethiopic and Coptic and all kinds of other ancient uh, languages, uh, that number increases to about 20,000. Uh, and so I like what Dan Wallace says, uh, with just a little bit of exaggeration, uh, if you have a, a good uh, Greek New Testament, uh, particularly the Nestle Island edition that has uh, references to uh, several thousand uh, very minor textual variants in its footnotes, uh, he likes to hold up a, a copy of that and say, what do you mean we don't have the original? We have the original right here. We just don't always know if it's in the text or in the footnotes. Um, and uh, scholars have poured over these so long that uh, we can know where there is 
any question. Um, and even a reader of a, a modern English translation, if uh, they pay attention to uh, the footnotes, which is important to do, and it's important to have a, if you do it electronically, it's important to be sure you know how to access the footnotes, um, will tell you when there is a significant uh, variation worth considering. Um, it's just a matter of becoming familiar with that information and you see that uh, 99 plus percent of the text is at least of the new testament is secure beyond any reasonable doubt now you mentioned the numbers for example um over 5300 uh, or a uh, yeah 5300 uh, greek manuscripts have been cataloged why uh why is having such a huge number uh, significant to knowing what the original said? Because they're not all identical. Um, they do have all these minor variations that we're talking about. Um, a sizable majority are simply uh, differences of spelling of words. Uh, the next most common involves the use or non-use of uh, a definite article, uh, a preposition, uh, especially in Greek where case endings can tell you um, what we have to have prepositions to do in English. Um, word order where meaning is unchanged as a result of it. The types of things that if if one were to try to catalog all of those in a single volume, uh, you'd need an encyclopedia set or it's digital equivalent just to, to go through one small letter. Uh, but it, it amounts, that's because we're talking about 25,000 texts. Um, what we're able to do is to uh, recognize similarities among families of manuscripts that were clearly copied from a, a common uh, original. So we can simplify things down um, we have what are called text types that combine like families together. Um, again, there's a bit of an art as well as a science, but um, with a high degree of probability, we can say um, this is the most likely reading. It has the oldest, most widespread attestation among the manuscripts that have already proved themselves to be the most trustworthy. And um, I am grateful for men and women who've devoted their lives to doing that. It would bore me to tears, but I'm profoundly grateful that others have uh, been called to do that. Yeah, I, I, re I remember um, uh, in uh, Cold Case Christianity, uh, J. Warner Wallace kind of illustrated this uh, using like a, you know, in, in his book, he uses a lot of cop, uh, cop illustrations um, where the dispatcher has to give the same message over and over and over again, but each time she messes it up a little bit. <laughs> and so what you have, but, you know, you can compare all of the different messages, um, you know, where the crime is taking place and where the, uh, you know, what the suspect looks like. And you can kind of, you know, piece them together and you have a good idea of where to, you know, the police officers have a good idea of where to go and who to look for when they when they get there. Uh, even though 
uh, even though there are many variants between like the five, six, seven different uh, dispatch calls. And that's actually a, a great analogy for dealing with the, the differences among the parallel accounts of events in the four gospels. Those, those kinds of differences are vastly greater, even though they're still minor, uh, than the kinds of differences we're talking about when we're talking about textual criticism and simply uh, how a text has been copied. Um, no, nobody has to question um, the who, what, where, when, and all of that. The, the only uh, issue is did one writer use this word or a different word to describe basically the same thing? That's oversimplifying, but we have to do that, try to help people. So the text is 99% preserved for us. We, we have a 99% degree, degree certainty of what the original said. Um, or what higher. About, yeah, yeah, so what about that 1%? Uh, is there any doctrinal significance that that 1% might make? There's significance if um, you rely solely on a disputed text at some point um, because occasionally it, it will say uh, something slightly different. And of course, the two big famous examples that are unlike anything else that we see anywhere um, are the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 7:53 to 8:11, and the so-called longer ending of Mark uh, in Mark 16, what's come to be called um, verses uh, um, 9 to 20. Um, but if my doctrine is taken from the sum total of the text of scripture, there is no doctrine that is taught that Christians believe that is taught solely in some disputed text, not anywhere close to that. So in that sense, no, they, they don't have doctrinal significance. But if you wanna believe the longer ending of Mark and test the claim that you can handle snakes and drink their venom without harm. Um, I'd say be my guest, but I really don't encourage that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was having, um, I think, not a conversation, but uh, you know, on my blog I have sort of, I do kind of like what William Lane Craig does with his question of the week thing. Uh, where people will email me a question and I'll respond to it in the form of a yeah. blog post. And uh, this person was asking me about um, the the textual criticism issue. Um, and she said, like, you know, she said it did have doctrinal significance. And she pointed out, like, you know, the Johannine the comma. Right. And, uh, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You know, that's not that's probably not what the, uh, right. what the original epistle said, but I, I made the point that, you know, I never used that verse when defending the Trinity. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Trinity flows from five biblical facts that there's one God, 
the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit of God, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. And in a recent episode of Cerebral Faith Alive, I made a case for the Trinity looking at all sorts of scriptures like John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, the claims of Jesus and, and John and, and even Mark uh, before Jesus before his trial, uh, in which, you know, he makes a very blatant claim to deity. We just don't need it. Uh, right. the, the evidence for the, the biblical statements that, you know, when you put them together, churn out the Trinity, they're all over the text. And, you know, a Facebook friend of mine a while back said that 1 John 5, 3 might not even help the Trinity anyway, because it could be interpreted in a modalistic sense. You know, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Well, does that mean that they're, you know, that can be interpreted in a modalist sense rather than a Trinitarian sense. So, it, you know, even that's as much as I would like it uh, to use it because it's the closest to one verse that asserts the Trinity that we have. Modal, you know, Unitarians could find a way around even that. I still think the uh, Great Commission is pretty straightforward, baptizing in the one name not three names, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute, that's three. Yeah, but it's one name, one authority, one power, one person, um, well, one entity, three persons. Uh, pretty soon you'll make me a modalist too. But uh, yeah, that, and that's what I was trying to say in, in the way I answered the question take a single uh, variant and yeah, there may be something interesting related to doctrine about it. But if your question is, does any Christian doctrine depend solely on a disputed text? No, it doesn't. Not even close. Yeah. Not even the secondary issues like the Arminian Calvinist debate, you know, uh, d depend on uh, the d on disputed texts, but especially not the, not the essentials. Or, or ethical questions. Uh, right. right. So how would you, how does uh, the, the textual evidence for the New Testament stand up to other ancient writings like Josephus and Tacitus, uh, yeah. the writing of uh, Plato? Astonishingly well. Um, the only other document that we have where manuscripts even top uh, a couple thousand is uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer because in many ways uh, across all the different uh, Greco-Roman schools of thought Homer was an author who was studied by Greek schoolboys, and I say boys intentionally since girls generally didn't have the opportunity unfortunately uh, of going to school um, beyond that, a few of the Roman histories uh, have survived with a couple hundred of manuscripts, but very quickly we're down into the dozens. Um, and the vast majority of ancient writers' texts we know about, we consider it fortunate if we can compare three or four different manuscripts. Um, one of the amazing things about uh, the discovery of the so-called Gnostic 
Gospels or texts at the Egyptian site of Nag Hammadi was it gave us an entire copy of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which previously had been known from three very partial Greek fragments um, found in the late 1800s at another Egyptian site called Oxyrhynchus. Three fragments and now one, oh, and by the way, it's translated into Coptic in the fourth century. And people saying, this is wonderful. We can make these comparisons. Well, not in most places, just where the fragments exist. Um, that's so different from everything we see in New Testament textual criticism. And this would be another example of what we talked about earlier, where um, people kind of hold the New Testament to a, a different standard, uh, where the New Testament's got better evidence than other uh, written works that we accept. I have a, a friend uh, who is a, a very good scholar who teaches at Viola uh, University, but I will not give you his name in case uh, he would prefer not to, uh, to have it aired in this particular context, um, although I don't, I mean, I've heard him say it at big conferences, um, who says that he has yet to meet a person raising questions about the reliability of scripture. And he has talked and traveled and blogged and, and spoken very widely. Um, who, if he gets the chance to have a longer conversation, the questions about the New Testament are what counselors would call presenting issues. They're what uh, you first put out in a conversation, but the real problems are that the individual has been personally hurt or damaged in some way. Uh, sadly, often by um, conservative Christians who have not shown any love, but simply uh, attacked or censored uh, the individual. I can't share my friend's absolute absolutism. I have met people, I have friends to this day who I know well enough that I believe they're not hiding anything from me and that it is issues with the text of scripture that really are keeping them from the faith. But I haven't met many and, and most that I have met, uh, it's not that they're necessarily deliberately trying to, to cloud the real issue. They have questions in that area, but that's a safer place to start than to say, um, let me wear my heart on my sleeve and tell you about the uh, elder in the church my parents took me to as a kid who abused my sister. Um, yeah. And when we discover that, we just have to say, that's tragic. I am so sorry. Um, I do not tolerate that in the least. And if it's possible, please don't blame Jesus for the jerk stuff some of his followers have done. 
<laughs> yeah. So next issue is the dating of the Gospels. How early were the Gospels written? Generally, the earlier the source, the more trustworthy the source because there's less in, uh, time for embellishment to occur. So when when were the when do you think the Gospels were written, and how do we know that that's that's when they were penned? Well, I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written in the '60s, the first century, and John was probably written in the '90s. Um, but we don't know. We don't all agree. Um, in more liberal Christian circles, uh, it's still very common to find people dating Mark into the '60s, but some would put him into the '70s. The 80s is the decade that you most commonly find people putting Matthew and Luke, but some would go even a little bit later. And hey, we largely agree on 90s for John. Um, if one follows the same authors uh, and some others, but ancient second, third, fourth century Christians uh, testimony then the conservative dates are what the evidence points to. If one uh, is suspicious of that um, and relies totally on what is called internal evidence, hints from within the documents themselves, then reasons can be put forward. I don't find any of them conclusive uh, for uh, a slightly later date. But what I like to stress is leave the date um, a little bit ambiguous because almost everybody still agrees that we're talking about first century tech and that alone is striking in its closeness in time to the events by ancient standards. Yeah, um, they're not, it, the debate is not over the century, but the decade. That's what right. Are, what are some of those internal arguments for early dating? Well, the the internal arguments that are pointed to are often used to go in the other direction, um, but but not always. Um, there's a, a famous, uh, actually, atheist uh, scholar of the New Testament in uh, in London uh, by the name of James Crossley, who has. I think it's now maybe a little over 20 years old, but wrote a, a book dating uh, the Gospel of Mark to the early 40s, possibly even the late 30s. But the way he did it was not by quoting anybody from the ancient world who thought that, but by saying he believed that he could demonstrate that um, the Jesus that appears in the Gospel of Mark was still uh, completely law-abiding and was teaching his followers to completely uh, keep all of the Jewish law. And we see already by the mid-40s that the early Christian movement um, is seriously questioning this. So on those grounds, um, he dates uh, Mark extraordinarily early. Well, I've, I've met some uh, Christians who get all excited about that. And uh, I try to calm them down. I say, well, wait a minute. 
the cost of accepting his case is an interpretation of Mark that hardly anybody else holds. And that then creates other internal problems with other New Testament documents. Uh, so just because somebody has a conclusion that you like, don't, uh, don't immediately jump on their bandwagon. Uh, there was a, a British scholar who's passed away a number of years ago now by the name of John Wenham, who wrote a book called Redating uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or something to, of that effect. And he thought he could date Luke um, to the mid-50s based on a way of seeing him as one of the uh, unnamed um, people in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that Paul was arranging to go with the gift of money that uh, he was collecting to be delivered to the saints in Jerusalem. It's, it's a fascinating argument. I understand where he's coming from. I'm not convinced by it. Um, I don't think that comes at the cost that Crossley's argument does. But again, we want the strongest arguments all around. We want to be as credible as we can. Um, if the early church says uh, that uh, Mark was written uh, because he consulted Peter at the request of Christians in Rome, and we know that Peter was martyred under Nero in the mid-60s, then Mark needs to be before the mid-60s. But let's not just push him back as far as we can um, if the evidence isn't there. Yeah, the the arguments that I usually run into, and I, I find them compelling, um, is that, well, they start with the book of Acts, and they say, well, Acts yep. ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And we know from extra-biblical sources that Paul was killed by Nero and Peter was crucified upside yep. down. Paul and Peter are the like the two main guys in the book of Acts. <laughs> Peter is uh, very heavily prominent in the first part, and then the rest is uh, Paul's. And uh, there's no recording of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so if, if these were written after that, surely the book of Acts would have recorded it. In fact, when I was a child, I... Uh, asked, I, I asked my pastor why the why the Book of Acts didn't record, uh, you know, Peter's martyrdom, uh, you know, being crucified upside down. I, I thought, gosh, that that seems like something that you would not leave to later writers. And so they conclude, well, it must have happened before that, sixty-two at the latest. And then the the, the argument is, well, since Luke was written before Acts, they give some arguments for. Um, for, for their shared authorship. Well, then Luke was even later. And then they point to the, the synop what's called the synoptic problem. I don't really see it as a problem, but, uh, you, you know, since Luke borrowed from Mark, well, Mark had to have been even earlier. And so that's how you get like a mid sixties, uh, a mid fifties date for Mark. Um, what do you think of that argument? Well, you can you can press the the argument for sixty two even further. Um, the there there could be reasons for not talking about the destruction of of, of Jerusalem because um, Acts is 
describing key events in the life of uh, the earliest Christians. But from a literary point of view, you have Paul getting in trouble with the authorities in Jerusalem, being arrested basically to save his life, languishing in prison for two years under Governor Felix, having trials and hearings before Jewish and later Greek authorities being passed on still in prison to Festus. Festus wanting to open the case up again. Paul finally just being frustrated with the whole thing and saying, I appeal to the emperor, right, you're going to the emperor, you're gonna to go to Rome. They get him on a boat. The boat encounters, uh, um, what would we call it today? Uh, a hurricane with a cyclone and a tornado thrown in. Um, a terrible storm on the Mediterranean Sea. They're shipwrecked over winter in the island of Malta. They finally get to Rome. The next spring, Paul is under house arrest, awaiting the results of his hearing. And the book ends. Luke, what happened to Paul? <laughs> um, and although there are other explanations, it certainly still seems to me that a very probable one is Luke wrote before he knew what happened to Paul. And so uh, that's where he can bring the story to. If you go backwards from Acts, um, how far back do you have to go to get to Luke? maybe a period of months. It doesn't have to be long. Um, we know from First Peter that Peter and Mark were together in Rome from 60 onward. And Luke, according to Acts, what he says, we is with Paul in Rome from uh, 60 to 62. There is nothing to prevent those men from having met with each other. Paul was allowed to receive visitors under house arrest. And Paul could be, uh, Luke could have become familiar with what Mark wrote as, as late as 60 or 61. Yes, you can go back into the, the early 50s. Then you have to have the people becoming aware of each other's writings in a different way because they're not all together in Rome. But uh, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying, uh, I like the way you're going. <laughs> so one method of showing a document or an eyewitness uh, to be reliable is if you can corroborate their stories with external witnesses. Could you tell us of some extra biblical documents and archaeological discoveries that would validate the historical events in the Gospels? For example, uh, extra biblical written evidence that mentions uh, New Testament characters would be the writings of Josephus and Tacitus and examples of archaeological uh, evidence would be things like the Pilate stone inscription and the Caiaphas ossuary. Could you talk to our audience about this and feel free to go into as much evidence as you like? Uh, that might be a dangerous permission since entire <laughs> detailed books have been written on archaeological comparisons. So I'll I'll try not to uh, take advantage of that part of your question, but um, I like to uh, 
put things as a composite. There are uh, testimonies in Jewish circles, as you mentioned from Josephus, and then um, traditions that were passed along by word of mouth, eventually written down in an encyclopedic collection of information about the rabbinic period known as the Talmud. There is testimony from the Greek writers Lucian and Mara ben Serapion. There is testimony from Roman writers, including Thallus and Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny. And if you put it all together, you can create a composite that reads something like this. There was a first third of the first century Jewish man who lived in Israel by the name of Jesus. He was born out of wedlock. As a young man, his uh, public activity intersected with that of uh, a contemporary by the name of John who baptized people, um, immersed them in water as a symbol of their becoming right with God, repenting before him. He had uh, a brother, or at least a half-brother, uh, by the name of James. As an adult, he began to go around publicly and become famous with his teaching. He gathered disciples to him, five of them uh, are named, although the names are a little garbled at times. Um, he seemed to consistently run afoul of the Jewish authorities in terms of his interpretations of the law, but his followers began to believe that he was a Jewish Messiah or hoped for liberator. Um, he was eventually... Uh, because of the growing conflict, uh, crucified, executed uh, under the reign of Pontius Pilate, which we can date to between the years 26 to 36 in the first century. And yet, despite that um, very decisive and gruesome execution, uh, some of his followers believed that they saw him raised from the dead, and they began to meet on a regular basis uh, singing hymns or songs to him and worshiping him as if he were a god, the language of Pliny there at the end. Um, now, someone might say, well, out of all the information we find in the four gospels, that's not a huge amount, um, which is certainly true. But then one has to remember that histories and biographies in the ancient world were virtually exclusively written about kings and queens and military generals and rich people and uh, those who held uh, institutional positions of religious leadership or uh, philosophical acumen. The idea of writing a history or a biography of ordinary people was really an invention in Europe of about three or 400 years ago uh, and didn't even become popular until more recently than that. Add to that that the Christian movement was very small in the earliest days. 
Nobody imagined that it would turn into what it has become throughout history. Add to that that even the historians that we do have and the biographies that we do have, except for Josephus, are exclusively Greek and Roman, one or two Egyptian sources and writers whose purview was not even to talk about things happening in Israel. And Jesus never traveled beyond the Eastern Mediterranean basin. Um, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I come across these uh, websites that list uh, a dozen first century historians that say nothing about Jesus. When you actually look at them, most of them aren't historians. Um, they have a playwright, they have a botanist, they have a geographer, they have different people. Some of them lived too early and wrote too early to have known about Jesus. Um, and the ones that are truly historians and biographers in the works they say don't even talk about anything remotely close to Israel. So why would you expect to find anything there? Yes, because so like basically, uh, if they're talk if if that's not their topic, it would be kind of random to just throw something in about Jesus. <laughs> like you know, you're Evan is going to write the definitive history of the great apologists of the world, but. He doesn't say anything about Nelson Mandela in South Africa. <laughs> right. Well, why should he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that composite that you put of, you know, the the outline that right. we pull from all the extra biblical evidence, both the written sources like Josephus, Tacitus, Marabar, Serapion, and archaeological sources like the Pilot Stone inscription, I haven't even Ossuary, James Ossuary. Uh, I've seen Frank, the apologist Frank Turek. Um, I think he does this in his book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but he has definitely mm -hmm. done it in uh, PowerPoint presentations. Uh, and it's just, it's just incredible. I'm just struck by the, you know, you get like the bare bones outline That's right. of what the gospels talk about without, and you're not even looking at the gospels. You're just looking for like, so if, so if you're not even looking at any Christian. Yeah. Evidence. So if you if you just if you just if we didn't have a New Testament, we could have that bare bones out. We could know that bare bones outline about Jesus and, and what he did. Um, I find that to be very powerful confirmation that the New Testament authors were trying to write a history of a historical person. Uh, they were not, you know, writing fairy tales, as the Internet infidels will often say. Um, I, I find that to be very powerful evidence and i even i even realize now that i skipped an important bit from josephus who said that he performed wondrous deeds the greek word is uh, paradoxon from which we get our english paradox it doesn't quite mean that but um that has often been understood as a reference to jesus miracles yeah so we talked about external confirmation uh, of the Did gospel. you want me to do a little something with archaeology? Yeah, let's, let's go into some archaeology. Um, 
Yeah, so I'll try to be briefer here, and I don't have my PowerPoints with me, but because uh, I have some of this on there. If we just go back um, over the past century and a bit, we've discovered the two pools in Jerusalem of Bethesda and Siloam that people didn't think existed. We thought we knew where Siloam was and it was kind of small, and within the last 15 years, extra excavation shows that that was just a little uh, um, wading pool at one corner of Siloam, and it really was huge. Uh, interestingly, Bethesda and Siloam were likely the two largest pools, one on the north, the other on the south side of the temple precincts. Jews coming to town at festival time had to purify themselves to enter the temple precincts. How do you immerse in water thousands of pilgrims arriving? You, you can go to Jerusalem if you pick a time when you think it's safe. Um, and you can go see those pools. There could have been hundreds of them at any one time in any given pool immersing themselves quickly getting out to let the next crowd in, um, which also explains probably how uh, 3,000 could be baptized at uh, the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. Um, so you have very specific things like that. You have, uh, you said ossuary, I think you meant uh, uh, we have uh, Caiaphas's uh, coffin or uh, full-blown uh, the ossuaries are just the tiny little bone boxes, but we found one that probably is James, the half-brother of our Lord. There are things like um, the Jesus boat. This is a great tribute to Israeli um, commercialism. In 1986, the pieces of a first-century boat started appearing at the edge of the Sea of Galilee after a record drought. And in the most painstaking multi-year process of preserving and reassembling what could be of the hull of this boat, um, the Jewish authorities built an entire museum, small, but it's there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to house this single artifact. But, you know, you throw in a gift shop and you throw in a cafeteria and you throw in a room full of pictures describing all the archaeology and photos and text and so forth. And then you get in the room where you can see the, the boat's hull and the lights come at it from different angles. I, I mean, it's worth seeing. Um, we didn't know previously that boats were big enough for 13 small men like Jesus and his 12 disciples going across the Sea of Galilee. Now we do. Is this Jesus's boat? Highly unlikely, given the number of boats there were, but the Israelis want tourism, so they called it the Jesus boat. Um, so um, Herod the Great's tomb, uh, the site of it, that's been within the last 10 or 15 years. Oh, I didn't um, know about that. I knew, I knew about coins that had been found with Herod's yeah. name. You can, you can see a modern day little 
that they found his tomb. You can see a modern day little mausoleum like building that's right on the side of um, the Herodian, which was a man made hill south of Jerusalem that housed on the top of it uh, Herod's uh, summer palace, but also a retreat in case he ever came under siege that he could go to. Um, at the, I think it was 2009, there had been for the longest time questions about foundations of houses in Nazareth, um, but with more digging, it was more conclusively established that one could be dated to the first century. Uh, it, it's fascinating, like we've talked about already, the skeptical mindset, because we knew there were homes in Nazareth as early as the third century. We knew there were homes in Nazareth as late as the second or third century BC. Well, now, doesn't that sound like there probably was a town there the whole time? I mean, something could have happened, but we have no other evidence to suggest that. But the skeptical claims that we have nothing from a first century Nazareth which really proved nothing, have now been overturned because we do. Uh, there really was a small village there. So then once you move into topography, the lay of the land, um, Jer Jericho, the city of palms, to this day, thanks to good agriculture, you can still see palm trees there. They grow well. Why did the people following Jesus up to Jerusalem strew palm branches along his way? Why doesn't it say they, uh, they put uh, fig leaves or something else? It fits the location. Um, why does Jesus tell the parable of the pounds right at that very location? And not quite the same as Matthew's parable of the talents, but in Luke 19, he has this little bit about a nobleman who went away to get a kingdom and then to return. But the citizens opposed him. When he came back, he destroyed them as a result. Any first century listener would have said, oh, you're playing off Archelaus, one of Herod the Great's sons who did exactly that, and in um, 4 BC, uh, his opponents were massacred. They did it again 10 years later in 6 AD and succeeded because he was so ruthless. Is it a coincidence that we found the foundations of Archelaus's palace, an enormous complex right outside of Jericho? Jesus is telling stories based on things people can look up and see. Um, yeah, I could go on, but I won't abuse your, your permission to go on forever. Sorry, that was my phone. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, there's a lot out there, and uh, whole books have been written on it. Um, there's um, one of my favorites is uh, Craig Evans' Jesus and His World. The archaeological evidence that that's a good book that shows uh 
the archaeological corroboration of the uh, of the New Testament. Um, and I uh, with the Book of Acts, I remember uh, reading about, forever. Yeah, reading about a um, a book by a scholar named Colin Hemer. Yep, and uh, called the Book of Acts in the setting of Hellenistic, Hellenistic history uh, or Hellenistic history. Right. I've never read it because it's out of print and it's extremely expensive. But Lord willing, I I will get my hands on a copy someday somehow. Maybe they got it in logos or something. I don't know. Well, come um, to Denver. I'll I'll loan you my copy. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I have seen like, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Like a summary, just a list right. of Colin Hemer, and it it numbers eighty four things that the Book of Acts gets right, even like little tiny stuff that nobody would really care about, like the names of you know the the size of a port or the you know the names of local councilmen just one of, really one of the more remarkable that. features for me is if you go through acts it seems like every new community that paul and his companions go to has uh, civic leaders with different titles so in one place they're politarchs in one place they're magistrates in another place they're tribunals he goes to the island of Malta because he's shipwrecked there, and it's the chief man. Um, and Luke gets all of these right based on other sources that we have. He gets places right. Um, if you go to modern-day Konya in central Turkey, um, ancient Iconium, there is a Muslim-owned, Muslim-administered small city museum that you have to see. But uh, before you go in, um, look under the shaded part to the left of the front door where there are a number of inscriptions that, that look sort of like tombstones just out in the grass with nothing calling attention to them. And you can find the inscriptions that were discovered that first enabled us to locate Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, cities that skeptics thought probably were just made up names. And this all within the last hundred or so years. Um, and uh, the tour guide may not even know uh, why you're doing this. Some of them know why, why Christians do it. Um, do it politely, but... Um, yeah, it just goes on and on. <laughs> so we talked about external evidence of confirmation of the Gospels, but what about internal evidence? Um, Frank Turek uses the criteria of authenticity in a cumulative way to show that the Gospel authors were probably telling the truth about this event and that event. Uh, for example, uh, in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he and Norman Geisler use the criterion of embarrassment in about a couple of dozen different areas. Uh, and they show, hey, they're they're just telling it like it is, warts and all. They're just making, why would they make up all sorts of these embarrassing details? And so they make like, they use the criteria in a cumulative way to show that, you know, they're reliable. What do you, what do you think of that argument? Yeah. Um, 
the the cumulative use is uh, sort of a tricky thing because theoretically, if I have a weak argument, then it doesn't add up to much. If I have two weak arguments, that doesn't make my case any stronger. If I have five weak arguments, you're starting to doubt my credibility. Um, but if I have strong arguments, and yet not one of them is absolutely conclusive, but it seems to point to a kind of a pattern, then the more I can show that, yes, uh, you're, you're mounting a credible case. And you're talking about things, I'm sure, like uh, the way Luke preserves the language in Luke 14, 26 of the um, whoever would be my disciple must hate their father and mother, sisters or brothers. Um, we have a somewhat parallel passage in Matthew, though it's in a different context, where Jesus says, uh, um, you have to love God far more than these people. And both love and hate in both Hebrew and Greek were often absolute words used comparatively to mean prefer more, prefer less. Uh, so there's ways to make sense of what Jesus said. It's not that it's just nonsense, but my goodness, um, unless there was some constraint on, on Luke's preserving what he was told was the way that teaching was phrased, why would he, he phrase it the way he did? Or a quite different one where uh, Mark 13 has um, Jesus say, no one knows the day or hour of the return of the Son of Man, not even the Son, not even himself. Well, again, theologians wrestling with that said, well, sure. Um, Jesus, in the voluntary adopted limitations of his incarnation, <clears throat> he was not omnipresent. There were no multiple sightings of Jesus in different cities at the same time. Um, he was not omniscient. It was the Father's will that he not have the ability. He, he did not, like the apocryphal gospels sometimes do, come out of Mary's womb spouting uh in complete sentences, great wisdom as a newborn baby. <laughs> so it makes sense, but wouldn't it have just been easier not to quote something like that and raise all the, the questions? Um, so yes, I, I think that can be very useful. So another example of internal evidence for the reliability of the gospels is undesigned coincidences. And Lydia McGrew, talks about this, her whole book is dedicated to this, just this one argument. Uh, her book is called Hidden in Plain View. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think this counts as good evidence? And if so, would you mind going into a few examples of yeah. coincidences? Um, and again, sorry, uh, you know, you don't have to be convinced by every last one, uh, but I, I do think enough of them are strong that, that there is a point. Um, one of the areas that, that I find particularly helpful 
is uh, comparing John to the other three Gospels because John is so different. Um, but you have things like um, John chapter 3, where uh, there is a, a discussion between John and uh, some of his followers and a guy comes and says uh, Jesus you know that guy on the other shore uh, the other side of the Jordan he's making a whole lot more disciples than you are and John's famous reply is he must increase and I must decrease um, but the narrator John the Apostle telling the story says this was before John was put in prison oh John was put in prison if if I'm a first-time reader of the Gospels and I start with John this this godly man was in prison oh well maybe I'll read that later maybe this is foreshadowing and I keep reading and I keep reading. I get to the end of John's gospel. And there's not another word about John ever being imprisoned. It's like, well, what was that all about? It seems that the author knew his audience would know enough about the story of Jesus' life already. And even a little bit about the chronology of events that uh, that would be a meaningful comment precisely because John does not narrate the imprisonment of the Baptist. Well, go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark being the longest in Mark chapter 6, and you find detailed accounts of John's imprisonment. Um, another one that I find particularly telling is uh, when it comes time to find false witnesses to accuse Jesus at his trial before the Sanhedrin. Um, Mark and his uh, synoptic parallels will say that um, somebody stepped forward and said, he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it within three days. Oh, did he? And I flip backwards in Mark because this is at the end of Jesus' life. And I go, I don't see this anywhere. I don't see it in Matthew and I don't see it in Luke. But I go to the Gospel of John. And there's a story in John chapter 2 about Jesus upsetting people in the temple. We, we call it the temple cleansing, which has to be the worst misnomer. It's the temple messing up. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, John 2.19 says that Jesus told the authorities, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He didn't say he was going to destroy it. But that would have been two or three years earlier. That's close enough to what the false testimony is. And by the way, it's called false. You could see how it could have gotten slightly garbled over time. But the one comes from the synoptics, the other comes from John. And uh, at that point, they're clearly independent of each other. Yeah, and I, rem I, I, I like the example uh, of the 
the beatings of Jesus. Um, like there's, I can't, rem I, I don't know which gospel says what, but one gospel says uh, that one of the people, one of the Sanhedrin members, you know, struck Jesus and said, prophesy, who hit you? And, you know, he's standing right there. Obviously, he's going to know who hit him. He just has to look over and says, oh, yeah, it was uh, it was Bob here. Um, but then another gospel says that they blindfolded him before they hit him. And so that explains why it would have been a significant test, because, he, he, you know, he wouldn't have seen who hit him. I can't remember which gospels omitted the blindfolding and which one presented it, but that would be an example of, of an undesigned coincidence. And by the way, I didn't say this in my question, but uh, for, the, for, for our audience, an undesigned coincidence is when you have one gospel saying one thing and it raises a question because they don't, you know, they leave out a detail or two, but you read in another gospel, it talks about a detail where when you put the two together, you're like, oh yeah, now it makes sense. Uh, and another example is, um, G, um, Jesus um, claims to be a king, and uh, then then Pilate comes out and says, "Oh, he! I don't find anything to condemn him." Wait a minute, he just claimed to be a king. That wouldn't that be treason? Uh, <laughs> but you read in John's Gospel uh, that he says, "Oh, my kingdom is from another world. If my kingdom were of this world, my." my servants would fight for my arrest. And so Pilate, whatever he's thinking, he's like, oh, well, maybe he, maybe he's from, you know, the spiritual world or, or something, but he's obviously no threat to Caesar. Um, so John explains, you know, one of the synoptics where, you know, Jesus says, uh, claims to be a king, and yet Pilate is perfectly fine with that. And so, we keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Um, those are those are a couple of my favorites because um, it's, it's just if you if we have all four gospels and so we kind of take these explanations for granted we have the full picture but if you're looking if you you know b back in the ancient times you maybe a church only had Matthew right. or maybe they That's only right. had John and so they would have thought wait what's going on here um, but if they had all four they'd be able to you know, one raises a question, and, and it's really interconnected. Uh, the way that you know they all all of them raise questions, and then the other ones sort of answer the questions. And it's not in like any significant details. It's like in things like, um, for example, Jesus asking Philip where they would get something to eat when they were. I think I think it was in Caesarea Philippi. Um, outside of Bethsaida. Well, yeah, or outside of Bethsaida. Um, and then in another gospel, you read, oh, that was Philip's hometown. So Philip was the logical answer. It's right. just little things like that. And that is like strong support that these are eyewitness accounts and they're just, you know, they're just straight recording uh, history. They wouldn't, it's not, it's not like they were like, hey, uh, hey, John, you say something that, uh, but you omit, you, you record this, but you omit this detail. That's I'll right. answer it I'll in my mind, and, and then we'll, we'll make it look like, uh, you know, uh, th that's, that's the undesigned part of it. Since obviously you're going to edit this since you've 
done some things I'm assuming you're going to edit out. Uh, can we wrap this up soon? We've been going about an hour. Uh, yeah, now. I, yeah, I know. I, I didn't, I usually intend for it to be an hour. I'll, I'll only ask a couple more questions. Okay. Um, uh, how would you respond to the skeptic who says that the gospels can't be reliable because they contain miracles? Uh, they say, we know miracles can't happen. So the gospels must be fabrications. I would, I would take two different approaches. One is to say, um, we have other ancient histories that include accounts of miracles, including something as uh, bedrock solid as uh, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon and uh, parallel accounts, some that contain miracles and some that don't. And what historians do is those who are inclined to, they discount the miracles, but assume everything else still makes sense. Um, but then I would want to push it one step further and say, you know, miracles can't happen. How do you know that? Um, and of course, it would depend on their answer to, uh, to see what direction they go in. Uh, a lot of people will quote uh, Hume's uh, famous uh, arguments from the uh, 1700s that it's always more probable that there's a natural explanation than a, a supernatural explanation. But there's been a lot of good philosophical work done on that, too. Uh, it's interesting. Scientists may, may still sometimes think that's true, but not too many philosophers find it true. There were a lot of miracles going on uh, in Hume's day, and the reports were coming to Scotland from missionaries around the world. Uh, Hume being Scottish, but in a world without uh, uh, photography and the ability to uh, send it instantly, uh, Hume didn't believe any of those accounts because they all came from lands of primitive people. And if you look at some of Hume's writings, there are blatantly and horrifically racist comments that he makes about the trustworthiness of anybody who's not a white European. Um, today, somebody like a Craig Keener uh, in two volumes in a book that came out a decade ago simply called Miracles has collected over 500 of the most documented miracles from every continent, including North America, um, and has parallels to every form of miracle found in the Gospels, although healings and exorcisms are certainly the two most common. So I would simply dispute that uh, anybody has proved that miracles can't happen. If anything, uh, the evidence is overwhelming that they do. How would you respond to, this, uh, to the skeptic who says that we can't trust the Gospels because they're biased, they're religious propaganda? Yeah. And point to John t chapter 20, verse 21, and says, hey, look, John even admits as much. Yeah. Well, then don't trust anything from any history book that you ever read about the ancient world because everybody had their ideology, everybody had their bias, and uh, I probably shouldn't trust you speaking to the skeptic, because you're obviously biased against Christianity. Um, 
it's a it's a self-defeating position to take uh, and then furthermore um, certain kinds of biases uh, actually require you to do the very best you can in being faithful uh, to the historical narrative uh, if I to just take a trivial example <laughs> want to demonstrate that it's much better to buy a, a Chevrolet than a Ford, and I'm absolutely biased in favor of Chevys. I'm now speaking as my parents would have when I was a little kid. Um, then I'd better have all the accurate facts down about the performance uh, and customer satisfaction of both of those companies, because if I start skewing it, I'll be disproved in a heartbeat. The early Christians were trying to make claims about Jesus' life and ministry, his teachings, his miracles, his resurrection, that flew in the face of what most people believed and wanted in his world also. Uh, if the Christian church was to have any chance of success, it had to be as scrupulous as possible in telling the story straight. So before we go, uh, are there any future speaking engagements that you'd like our audience to know about or, or any future books that you plan on writing or that are going to be published in the future that, that you'd like to plug? I'm guessing that the first part of that question is one that got a lot better answers before COVID than more recently. Um, I am just starting to get a few things back on the table again. And, uh, Probably nothing of significance for uh, for your viewing audience. I'll be at the Evangelical Theological Society meetings in November in Fort Worth, uh, for example, and speaking a couple of times there. Um, but I am uh, I have been working on some uh, revisions of books. Um, the uh, textbook from Pentecost to Patmos, Acts through Revelation just came out the beginning of this month in July in a second edition with Darlene Seal. Um, I hope to submit a third edition of Jesus and the Gospels to B&H by September, uh, give them a year's lag time. And if they rush, it might be out in time for textbook use in fall of 22. And I am working on a book that's been a long time in the making. I keep postponing it due to other more urgent things on the historical Jesus. Uh, it will be called Jesus the Purifier, furthering the fourth quest of the historical Jesus. You have to pay attention to Paul Anderson's work on the Gospel of John if you want to know about the fourth quest. Not many people are using that term yet. Um, and hopefully... Uh, sometime in 22, I can get that manuscript to, to uh, Baker, and then it'll come out in 23. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, Professor, Cl uh, Professor Blomberg, thanks for coming on the Cerebral Faith Podcast. It was good to have you. Thank you for having me. A lot of fun. Now, I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons, um, Adam and Amy Garman. Zach Miller, Slam RN, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And hopefully I will get more patrons in the future so that I will have to rotate these names around uh, because there will be too many of them. 
Uh, if you want to support this ministry financially, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Um, I can really use the financial backing. Everything I use with Patreon money, I use to buy for things that help me put out content. Um, here's just a list of things that I uh, pay for with Patreon. Um, $29 to pay Alpha Technologies, the website to keep cerebralfaith.net up. Uh, I pay uh, Canva premium. I pay for Canva premium, $12.99 a month to make the PowerPoint slides I've been using on Cerebral Faith Live, uh, $25 a month for StreamYard Premium, and some soon I hope to use patron money to uh, pay for Logos Bible Software, the silver package, because uh, for as long as I've been doing apologetics, I've been doing biblical research like, uh, like people did in the pre-internet era. Um, and that's going to take around $132 to pay for all of this. So your patronage is very, very much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Peace out. God bless. I will see you next time and keep using the brains that God gave you.